When the Missouri General Assembly reconvenes in January, Senator Dave Schatz will be one of the most influential and powerful lawmakers in the Capitol. The Sullivan Republican was recently picked to be Senate President Pro Tem, a person who directs where legislation goes and picks who chairs committees. Schatz joins us on the latest edition of Politically Speaking to talk about his new role and the legislative agenda for 2019. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, a candid conversation with the Show Me State's biggest political newsmakers. I'm Jason Rosenbaum. And I'm Joe Manish. Elections should be about your accomplishments. What have you done to qualify you for the position and why are you qualified to run? I'm going to push back on these regulators. I'm doing this for the people. I was encouraged along the way, not just by my family, but by a lot of teachers and professors and knew when I was in college that I would run for office someday. We're very excited about the prospect of having some more free market solutions. Even though after the conversation, I still might not agree. We want our listeners to get a real sense of what drives these people. They're actually people with a story to tell. Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Lufius Alfa Romeo, offering test drives of the Alfa Romeo Giulia, the 2018 Motor Trend Car of the Year at Lufius Alfa Romeo in Fairview Heights. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio in St. Louis today is... Colleague Joe Manis. And the pride of Sullivan, Missouri, we have... Senator the, Dave Schatz. The, impe- the incoming uh, Senate President Pro Tem. I, w- I will consider to be President Pro Tem-elect. Pre- President Pro Tem-elect. I didn't know what the exact title was. Well, I was. think that's probably fair to say it's elected because January 9th would be official. Yes. Yeah, and for our listeners, just to understand that President Pro Tem is the big shot in the Senate. Yeah, and well, I'm the big guy already. <laughs> yeah. I'm just big. How about that? And, so. and, and before we get into issues, like, and I kind of uh, made light of this on uh, the show with Senator-elect Eric Burleson, Speaker of the House of Missouri is typically seen as like this all-powerful legislative demagogue who can kill bills with a blink of his or her eye. Senate President Pro Tem is a powerful position, but senators by their nature— Doesn't wield that same power. No. No, just explain what the position is for, well, for people who don't know. Obviously, the, the Pro Tem is what I'll call is, is someone that basically presides over the Senate uh, that is calling balls and strikes. Uh, you are the keeper of uh, the rules as they are, as they are had been— um, if we have adopted rules, and then if there's challenges to the rules, the president pro tem is the one that decides, uh, you know, how those challenges are, are decided. That's one of the functions. Obviously, you have some administrative duties uh, that come along with it, making sure that all the people that are staffing the Senate, you're, you're involved in that process, hiring and, and approving expenditures and costs and things go along. And then the, one of the, the best things about the pro tem's uh, position is the ability to uh, you know, have a, a, a hand in the process of choosing the, the chairmanships, those who serve on the committees. I mean, that's the, where the, really the power is wielded at as far as choosing those chairmanships, and then where the legislation ultimately gets assigned to what committee it gets assigned to. And so that's kind of where the, the, the position, uh, the pro tem, uh, where there's some, some benefit there. I know you have appointed uh, Senator Hageman as appropriations chairman, and he was kind enough to join us on an earlier edition of Politically Speaking that was actually one of the most listened to shows of the year. Have you decided any other committee chairmen? You know, we're working on that. I think, uh, Jason, there's a lot of people that are very interested in, in some of those chairmanships and who's going to be in those positions. Uh, I don't think we're going to do anything that's going to surprise people, but until we actually become officially elected the pro tem, uh, it's all uh, subjective at this point. So they're really, I don't have the power yet to wield and make that happen until after January 9th. Ron Richard, the previous, or soon to be previous. Soon to be, pre- still a pro tem right now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, pro tem. 
you know, kind of wielded a heavy hand, so to speak. I don't mean that badly, but I mean he was definitely the go-to person for several years in the Senate. He previously had been a House Speaker, so he sort of was comfortable, I think, with wielding some power. Sure. Are there, looking at how he ran things, are there certain things that you, the ways that you'll be doing things that either will be different or the same? Well, I think I had the opportunity to serve with Ron for four years. I did not serve in the House, uh, but I knew Ron when he was the Speaker in the House. You served in the House, but not when he was Speaker. Not when he was Speaker. Yeah, I served four years in the House. Uh, And so, you know, I know one thing. Obviously, there's two different dynamics. And so Ron transitioning from the Speaker of the House to the pro tem obviously was a little bit of a difficult transition because you are the supreme authority when you're the Speaker of the House. And as you go to the pro tem, you have to be very careful uh, and, and how you approach that, because every senator uh, is as powerful as each any other senator uh, in, in all reality, whether you're on a minority party or the majority party. Yeah. Uh, and so it's a little different. You do not have the ability to really uh, wield too much power with those individuals at the end of the day. And this is getting really into the legislative weeds. But and that's I, what our listeners and I, love. And I promise we will, we will get a little <laughs> bit out of it. But I've, I've noticed from covering the Senate since about 2007 that there's often this renegade bumper crop of senators that often chafe against the leadership of, of, of either party. But, you know, in this case, it's the Republicans since the Republicans control it. I, I could foresee a situation where some of the newly elected senators kind of form a formidable uh, conservative coalition to either filibuster things or maybe direct the agenda in ways maybe leadership doesn't want to see. Um, do you foresee that happening, or do you want to maybe incorporate them into some of the more big issues to prevent stuff like that well, from happening? Well, and I think one of the things that, Jason, that I'm going to try to work on very uh, first off is to make sure that we, we want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. Uh, we're not, we don't want to exclude people or isolate people. And when you do that, sometimes you see those people fracture off and they, if they become disenchanted. I think the goal is here is just to make sure that everybody feels like they have a, a, a significant role in the process. And so as we choose those chairmanships and those people that serve on the committees, we want to put as many people in places where they want to be, where they can be effective. And that's my goal there. And so I think that maybe some of the things that Ron had done in the past, there were some people that probably felt like they were put in places they didn't necessarily want to be in, to be insignificant, and they created problems. But my goal is going to make sure that those people are satisfied. And hopefully, again, it's not easy. Uh, we have 24 members on our side. There's 10 on the minority side. Uh, and I guarantee you there's uh, 24 different personalities that were dealing with. Uh, but that's in managing people. I've done, you know, I've been in business all majority of my life, and that's what I've done. I've had to manage people and work through those issues. Yeah. And in fact, just briefly, explain to our listeners what your business is. I, By trade, I'm a utility contractor. I grew up, uh, my father was in the concrete construction business. So I, and I come right out of high school, I went to work in the, in the concrete business. And, uh, and so through the majority of my life has been in the construction industry. But right now I'm a utility contractor. Uh, we bury a lot of fiber optics that allows uh, some of the things that we're doing here right now to occur. Uh, and so it, we're a communications contractor and we run a business that, uh, you know, with approximately 125 employees that, uh, and we try to, uh, stay on top of that as well, our legislative have, duties as well. Have you talked with Senator-elect Laughlin about uh, the concrete business at all? Because oh, we, we, <laughs> we have an affinity for that. Like I said, when you grow up and pour as much concrete as I have, I started at a very early age, and so I have an affinity for someone that knows anything to do with concrete. I, I think she knows a difficult. little bit about that, but yes. continue, Joe. Yeah. So, I mean, from that line of work, what made you decide, you know, I think I want to run for office? Well, I will say this. My dad was, uh, my father was involved in the political process as I grew up. 
Uh, he had ran for sheriff uh, when I was young. He also had ran state representative back in, I think, 1990, unsuccessfully, did not make that. But he was involved in, in, in local politics, Franklin County Central Committee, uh, had been a, the chairman of that. And so he had, I've always been kind of involved and went door to door when I was a young kid, uh, done some work for, for Kit Bond and John Ashcroft when they were running for governor. I know that we were out actively campaigning as a, as a kid uh, with my family. So that kind of, that's where my uh, politics began to develop was from the, some of the things my father had taken me down that path. And so that's where my affinity for politics came in. Well, so since you're a native of Franklin County, you've probably seen some of the changes, political changes, but also demographic changes sure. in the county over those years. Are there things that particularly have struck you, uh, particularly now, as I said, now that you're going to be such a powerful player in Jefferson City, but are there certain things from your backyard that uh, either may influence you or things that you saw that were when you're when you were very young that now that you're older and you see demographic changes? One, one of the things I just recognize in my own community, like I said, I've lived in Franklin County all my life, but I see, um, you know, the it's more of a. Um, uh, we don't have this, the same type of home, home ownership or, or people that are connected to the towns as when I was growing up, and we've kind of lost that to really? a certain degree. Is it more what, renters? Or what? More renters. We have more renters uh, that are, like in the hometown where I'm from, uh, there's more renters than homeowners, I believe. And really? I don't know the exact numbers there. But we're just seeing a disconnect where, where people aren't necessarily connected to the communities to the extent uh, in, it is in Sullivan. But I think we're just seeing some of that. Uh, and Why? I'm not sure what's I don't really know. I don't know whether it's because of growing up that we had the Merrimack Mine was a, was a very large employer. We had manufacturing places in Sullivan that are no longer there. And so maybe that's part of the reason why that people have been become more transient and traveling. But I, I just noticed that in my community, uh, in that portion of Franklin County. And so that's a little different, you know, from that perspective. But like I said, when you get into the Washington, New Haven, uh, Union area, there's people, there's, there's people that I've known there that, you know, the names of people that you know, and you know the people in community. But literally my community has kind of changed where I used to know everybody and everybody knew who you were. Uh, and for the most part, that seems like that's changed a little bit at this point. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the issues that could come up in the next year or two. And some of this is going to stem from my interview with Governor Mike Parson that aired on Monday. I think this is just my opinion because we went through a lot of topics. But I think that the following uh, audio clip I'm about to play may have actually been the most newsworthy part of this entire 30-minute conversation. I'm going to play it right now. Well, I, th I think, one, the state has to play a role in early childhood development. I, and I realize different regions of the states like to put that in, and I get that. And that's fine if they can do it and they can figure out a, a revenue for it. But I think the state at some point will have to take a role in early childhood development and understand that's a long-term goal. Because, you know, if you start with a kid that's four years old, you know, it's going to be 20 years before you reap the benefits of that. But I think the state at some point will have to figure out a revenue stream or make sure that that's an option to the schools. Just says, hey, here is an option. And maybe, you know, it's kind of like kindergarten. You, you got a chance to opt in or opt out. He said early childhood development, but he also kind of meant early childhood early education, education yeah. which is, I guess, another word for preschool or any school that is before kindergarten. And this is my understanding, and maybe you have more insight on this. The state does play a small financial role in this because of the foundation formula sure. being funded, but it's pretty marginal. I think it was like $48 million split among every school district. So that's not really, I mean, for all intents and purposes, that's not serious state. Support. 500 and some school districts. Yeah, yeah that's not yeah. significant. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and I would imagine that some of your school districts that you represent in Franklin County, as well as some of your colleagues in more rural parts of the state, simply can't afford to offer 
free preschool to a lot of people. Sure. This really did strike me if, if there really is going to be an effort to try to put more state money into early childhood education. It could potentially be a game changer for a lot of school districts. The, the issue is, where do you get that money? Because it's not just like money <laughs> yeah. like flows on trees. So I want you to respond to the governor's comment. And also, I want to get a sense of whether this is going to be a, a major priority of yours as Senate Pro Tem. Well, one thing I will respond, and, what I, and I believe he is correct, I think early childhood development is, is one of the, the, the central things. And when we look at education, where we have failing education, and, and some of those kids that are coming from different t- types of home environments that maybe don't have the opportunity to have the interaction, uh, whether it be with uh, their parents, their grandparents, or whatever, they come into the system behind. And we know that if we can get those kids started early, get them and, and, and start in the process of learning, they're going to be more successful students. And, and again, helping and the teachers are going to have more success whenever they have students that have had some of that early training. Because I truly believe that, you know, the most formative years are that between uh, up to that seven, when you become seven years old. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, lot of uh, forming going on in the brain and, and the functioning and things of that nature. But I think that's very critical. I think the governor is correct. And how do we fund that? And I, I would say that that is probably one of the biggest challenges we do face uh, because there, you know, I, I truly believe that it is part of the secret. But I do one of the things that I have always said about education, uh, that we, we have got to find a way to, to focus and rebuild family, the family structure. Uh, when you look at how successful families and students come from those successful environments, not saying that you can't have successes outside of that, but I think it starts with the family structure. Uh, I am fortunate enough and blessed to have four grandchildren that my wife occasionally gets to watch, but she interacts with those young kids every day, and their vocabulary increases and grows when you do that with an adult, when you sit down and you read with these kids. So I don't think we can underestimate the value of having some way, if we can interject that into these homes that don't have that opportunity, whether it be with some form of early childhood uh, classes or something of that nature, I think it will be, it will pay incredible dividends long-term by doing that. So two things that I kind of broached to him, one thing that I broached and one thing that he broached without me prompting. I I said, well, maybe raise cigarette taxes to do this. He said it wasn't off the table, but as you know, there was an effort to do that in 2016 and it failed. Failed. The other thing that he mentioned was um, there was a Supreme Court ruling on uh, internet vendors and sales taxes. I know he talked about this a little bit more with the Associated Press of, 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 of bringing in more sales tax revenue that way. Uh, but I, he even admitted, though, that there's going to be a lot of different people or interest groups that are going to want that money if it even happens. So are either of those things options, or do you think it's going to take some more creative thinking than, than those I, I think, think it's going to take some more creative thinking. Again, I think we have to, you know, whatever we prioritize, we will fund what we prioritize. And if we truly believe that, that, uh, that, that we're going to get benefits and see a return on that particular investment, I think we'll find a way to fund that. Again, I, that's, the, that's the key. But I do believe, I mean, we, and, and I'm not the expert, but I, I just know from my own experience that how, how critical I believe that, that the function and role of early childhood development is very critical. So I think we need to, we need to focus on that. Well, some of this is related to, I think, uh, one of the major issues that are is affecting all parts of Missouri, uh, in some cases, some say more in rural Missouri, which is the whole opioid epidemic problem, sure. because that does definitely lead to, you know, the collapse of families, uh, grandparents having to take in kids because uh, the parents can't, just can't, <laughs> or these awful tragedies that we read about every day. Um of what happens sometimes when the parents are addicted. And many times it's from an injury or something. It's not 
quite the same as some of the uh, drug stuff when I was young. Right. I mean, it's this is, you know, people who start out with a prescription and then it goes. So how does the state, I mean, there's been discussion about whether or not the medical marijuana stuff will help some. But from the state level and from your level, when you're saying you want to... Um, when, when the governor's talking about early childhood development and all these other issues, don't you also have to somehow deal with this growing problem, which is killing off people or destroying families before you can do some of the other things? And how do you no, think I, that's No, th- that's why happen? I said, I, you know, when we talk about trying to, what, what can we do to rebuild that family unit? And I think that's probably one of the greatest destructive things, tools there is out there is this drug epidemic, whether it be opioids or methamphetamines, the things that people have turned to that get trapped. One thing about it, Joe, when they get into that environment, there's not a very, there's no way to escape that. They don't have the physical abilities to get away from that once they're addicted to that. You know, and so trying to trying to figure out how do we keep people from going down that path, and they ultimately do. It ends up in devastating that family. I can tell you there's not people, anyone out there listening probably knows or has someone that has been affected by this problem. I have always been a champion and advocate for trying to do things to address that particular issue. I do think that, again, at the root of the problem, uh, you know, we, we've, I've asked for common sense measures. I've been a strong advocate for prescription drug monitoring. I think that was a, a, a good step when I first came into the House. I was very, very concerned about, you know, the methamphetamine. Franklin County was one of the leaders yeah, in, fact, in, yeah. in, in methamphetamine and, and meth labs. And so how do we, you know, how do we address that? Obviously, you know, personal liberty, we, we have the concerns about that. And that's always been the pushback. Yeah, and that was going to be my next question. That. Senator Rob Schaff, who we'll hear from in a little bit, is leaving. And I think that he was the primary uh, antagonist against the PDMP. He's not the only person in the Senate that doesn't like it, but I think that he was probably one of the few people that was willing to like stand up and block it. With him leaving, do you feel like that per- creates the opening to pass legislation that that makes a statewide PDMP? What's your I what's think your take it gives us an opportunity, but I still think we have some folks out there that are going to be ad- adversaries against that particular issue, but probably not to the extent that Rob Schaff was. Uh, my first interaction with Senator Schaff was when I was a House member, and I was trying to uh, reduce the amount of, uh, uh, of pseudoephedrine that individuals could buy so that they couldn't turn it and manufacture it into methamphetamine. And obviously, I ran, ran into a roadblock at that particular point, and then I continued to see him be a roadblock. We do have members in our party that are going to be opposed to that particular element. They're, they're more concerned about the, that information. Somehow the information ended up in the hands of someone that shouldn't end up in. But I've always said this. I truly believe that an informed doctor, every person that's testified in committee before me, I ask the same question. Can a doctor make a better decision with more information or less? Every one of them will always say, if an informed doctor makes a better decision, if he has information. And so if I know what a, what a per- person has been dis- prescribed, then I can in- be and make an informed decision as a doctor. And, and you can't argue with that. And that information exists out there. They're concerned about creating another database, but it's already out there. If you don't think that information is, exists you know, by your insurance company, if you have insurance, that information is already going through a clearinghouse. You're not even going to get a script unless it goes through a particular clearinghouse, whether that script can be uh, approved or not. So I would like to continue to, to work on that issue. Obviously, I've filed it and carried it, and, and hopefully we'll get an opportunity for someone to carry that bill uh, to all the way to the finish line. Transportation, which I know is an issue that you've been dealing with probably since you entered the legislature. Yes. 
um, Proposition D failed. It's like the second time in four years that something was put before voters and they rejected it. The first one was a sales tax increase. Which, weren't you the House sponsor of that, by the way? Uh, I don't know if I, I was. I, maybe I was. I, pro, I, I was the House Transportation Chair at that time. You, you were yeah. you were obviously very uh, yeah. engaged in, in engaged that issue. In that, yes. And then Proposition D, which for all intents and purposes was a much more modest proposal than the sales tax increase, failed as well. So I think that has brought up the question, like, what next? I mean, it's possible you put a smaller sales tax or smaller gas tax increase before voters. But if the first one didn't pass, how would a second one pass? And, you know. Yeah. And why do you think it fell? I mean, because there was a lot of other so-called progressive things on the ballot that sailed through in November, but not the um, gas tax. You know, we, we did some post-election, uh, you know, trying to determine exactly what had there. You know, a lot of people, you know, again, part of it was due, due to confusion. They were, you know, because of the way we were ultimately had to get that particular bill out of the Senate chamber, it had, it it came with some some additional baggage and some language. And in 52 words, we tried to describe what we were trying to accomplish at the end of the day. But when people get to the point where they're a little bit confused, I think they vote no. And just for for some reference, when people looked at that ballot uh, on ballot language, a lot of it was like money going to the highway patrol and... The idea was you'd give money to the highway patrol and that would free up money for roads. But I think that's a difficult concept to explain to people. A lot of people thought, why should we give the highway patrol more money and not more roads, basically? Right. And, and at the end of the day, that, that was part of the thing that trying to educate voters that obviously we fund the highway patrol from the road fund. You know, it's, it is it is that is where the funding comes from. It's part of that. Uh, it's part of that user fee, what I'll call a user fee, as opposed to a gas tax. That user fee funds and pro- for the protection and safety of the roads comes from that particular gas tax. We had seen that that many places had passed uh, law enforcement, uh, public. Uh, you know, they, they were willing to invest in those types of of taxes. So we thought explain trying to explain to folks that obviously we'd like to get our our law enforcement people more funding. We could divert. Uh, some more money to them, and then also take what we're giving them and put it right back into the road fund where it comes from originally. It, was, it literally was something that we underestimated that how it might confuse people, and they didn't realize that we were already funding the patrol from from the uh, the road tax as it was at this point. So was it, from your standpoint, should there have been either more money or more focus on educating the, the public on exactly what it meant? Because I know in some of the other... Yeah. Proposals such as the marijuana, there was three dueling ones, but the one, uh, the the one that won, they have emphasized the education campaign they did to try to make make it clear to people this is the one you want. Yeah, I, so with I, the case of transportation, did you run into that where it wasn't enough education? Well, I, I think at the end of the day, yes. We also got a, a, an electorate that we didn't expect. We had a higher turnout. Uh, and it was We had polled this issue. I can tell you that we didn't go about this you know, half-heartedly. We had polled this issue in during the legislative session. We looked at what we needed to do and how to communicate to voters. And so we felt like what we were doing and, and the type of election that we were thinking we were going to have, that we were, we were polling above 50%. We felt like we had a great opportunity to pass that. And going into the final two weeks, we, we still felt that. But as, as that turnout model changed and different voters came out for different reasons, obviously we brought out a more conservative base that, that ultimately we got over a million votes for this particular uh, measure. Now, we passed Right to Farm, a constitutional amendment, with 500,000 votes. So I do believe that the, the right electorate, the right election time, we would pass 
uh, because people understand. We're at the point now where people are finally getting it. We need to make the investment. So what does it look like? What does the next plan look like, or is that just not known right now? Or what's the demographics look like on what you need? Well, I I think that what we, like I said, I think we probably needed needed more money to educate voters. There's no doubt about that. Maybe we need to get it down to very simple measures. And I think people would adopt the principle, the fact that we need, it's the best investment we can make is in infrastructure. And I think at some point, I don't know if it's going to happen this legislative session or not. If the Fed, federal government comes out with some sort of funding plan, we may have to adopt to that and figure out what it's going to take to draw down the maximum amount of federal dollars that we can. So I want to talk about another thing that Governor Parson talked with me about uh, earlier this week, and that's the low-income housing tax credit. Um, he is a noted proponent of that incentive. He sure. voted against every effort to kill it in 2017. But he's made clear that he wants the legislature to make changes to that program before he I mean, he didn't say this directly, but he basically controls the MHDC because his appointees, uh, you know, he appointed them all. Jason, I believe in May when we have another time for an interview that we'll be talking about that reform took place. Yeah, I really believe uh, working with the legislators, we've talked to leadership with the industry saying, look, this has got to happen. You know, and, I, and I've been around long enough in the legislature to know how it works, stall, stall, stall to the last, and say, whoop, we run out of time. That's not going to happen. I mean, I, I've been pretty open with everybody. We are not going to issue uh, those low-income taxes until we have reformed under that program so, uh, on the state level. Yeah, on the state level. The federal level, it's still going right now. Federal but. level, and we're going to issue some more on the federal level because that's money that, you know, if we don't use, we lose. So you're basically saying, I know I know, we've talked a lot about hard and fast things, like are you going to veto something, are you going to support something. If there's nothing done by the end of the session, you're not going to restart the program. That's correct. That, that's that, correct. that is something you're actually going to be hard and fast that's on. That's correct. I, they know that, and I've been open about that the entire time, and I aim to stay. So I was kind of surprised that the governor said that because it kind of gives an opening to people that really don't like LIHTC to just filibuster anything and kill any type of proposal. And, you know, if he reverses course and then restarts the program in May, you could point back to that type of clip and say he's being hypocritical. So obviously situations change and you could say, you know, obstructionists stop this. But are you as confident as, as the governor you're going to be able to get something done on this that's more than just surface-level changes to the program? You know, uh, and, and I'm not sure exactly what type of reforms they're looking at. I, I, You know, in my time throughout the legislature, I definitely think that there's things that we could do to, to make improvements to that. I think it, that, uh, first of all, you know, I've always said that I, I don't necessarily like the, the way that these projects are chosen, uh, how that process is done. I think we ought to qualify these projects. Again, this is, if I was going to make those reforms— qualify some of these projects in there and and not go through this process of, of the selection, but make it more of a lottery system. That if you're a qualified project, we know how many dollars that we're going to devote to this particular problem. Make sure that they all qualify, that they're necessary, that they're in communities where they're needed. And at the end of the day, they're rolled out. Uh, and if they're chosen, it's done through a lottery system. So there isn't any scrutiny as to whether or not someone stacked the committee or we had you know people out there that were able to, to sway people to their particular projects. And mm-hmm. so that's something I'd like that's that's very interesting well one thing i want to make clear to our listeners in effect the low-income housing tax credit program has been frozen for over a year for over a year i mean just this is kind of the the backdrop and the issue is when do you thaw it out if ever yeah and and (laughs) there are some other things like the fact that you have to split the tax credit over 10 years i think i think there's reasons you do that but in effect if if you're trying to sell the tax credit to, to a bank 
they're not going to pay as much because the return just takes a lot longer. So that's another possibility. But um, I just want to bring this bring this up. So Joe mentioned it's been frozen for a year, which means $140 million or so of state tax credits have not been divvied out. Is there going to be any effort you think as part of this quote reform package to like make up for that and allow like two hundred and eighty million dollars? I don't think so. No. Yeah, I, I want to, I, want I you to make, be clear about that. No, I, I think probably the fact that we're probably not going to go back and we're not going to add uh, double or, and try to you know to add for that particular year. I don't think that's going to occur. I think that obviously you know there was a conversation last year that we were looking at lowering uh, the amount, the dollar the amount, lowering the yeah. ceiling, which has been a discussion yeah, for that's been at discussion. least ten years. But I think what we at the end of the day, I mean, we ha- we have to get the people that are that whether they're opposed to them like them or whatever we got to come together we got to work to a solution yeah and i think that's going to be the key again if there's reforms that are necessary and i don't necessarily know that we're going to get people are going to come to the point where they're going to absolutely make it so impossible we can't get something done and therefore the program stays frozen so i'm optimistic about getting something accomplished on there again I will not be involved, in, and you know this is kind of unique for me because I have not filed one bill. I have not pre-filed oh, any man. bill as a pro tem. I mean, I filed multiple pieces of legislation last year, so it won't be. You know, I'm not involved in that, but I do know that that's an area of people that have interest, and with, there will be legislation yeah. addressing that. So let's talk about a couple of ballot initiatives that ended up passing in over the past uh, few months. Let's let's start with Clean Missouri first. Sure. Um, which is a trickier thing to, to, to deal with legislatively because it's a constitutional amendment. And it's got a lot of different parts. But I would say the biggest part, and we're going to talk about another part in a second, is it makes pretty substantial changes to state legislative redistricting. Now, I'm not saying that there weren't Republicans that supported Clean Missouri. Aforementioned Rob Schaff and uh, former Senator Jim Lemke did. But I've talked to a lot of Republicans and even some Democrats. There is a lot of strenuous opposition to the redistricting part because in Republicans' eyes, they feel like this was a Democratic effort to make state legislative redistricting more beneficial to Democrats after 2021. And it's brought the obvious question, like, is the Republican-controlled legislature going to put something else on the ballot in 2020 to basically change or undo all this? I think I asked you this question after you were uh, elected pro tem. I'm interested to hear what uh, some of the discussions have been, because it's a really difficult thing to navigate. If you don't craft a proposal the right way, it may just fail automatically because it's like the legislature patrolling itself, basically. But you could make some arguments that there's some legitimate issues in clean Missouri that may need some attention. Other people would say no. What's your take on it? Well, I, I definitely think as we begin to unpack and, and really get into and get some legal opinions and, and try to look at Clean Missouri for what it is, again, multiple things that were accomplished or put promoted in that particular thing. And again, I think one of the most egregious things that I would say is the redistricting portion. Uh, and I think whenever we have conversations with our constituents and people and we talk about how those the dynamics of these districts could change, you know, losing that community aspect or the uh, the the county, you know, contiguous districts, uh, you know, uh, compact contiguous district representation, how that, you know, how your representation could be, you know, representing someone here or all the way from from my from where I live all the way to someone that's in living in St. Louis City. The dynamics that exist between that representation and the needs are, are completely, totally different. Now, I live in a uh, what I would consider a somewhat rural suburban district. Franklin County has a lot of rural area. I have also 
I represent uh, the Chesterfield, Chesterfield area uh, and Eureka Wildwood, Western St. Louis County. So I have a little bit more of that dynamic to deal with, but not some of the issues that when you come into the downtown environment that, that a, an individual could be dealing with. Now, you know, with a lot of fanfare, um, some Republicans put together an opposition group that was supposed to really campaign hard and put up ads challenging Queen Missouri. It didn't happen, uh, or at least not enough, not, not by a long shot. Um, it may have reflected the fact that there were Republicans on the other side backing it as well. But my point is— I don't if, think there were a lot. Right, right. Uh, yeah. Well, Danforth and a few of them. I mean, I think Republican voters voted for it because if you look at the map, a lot of rural counties supported it. I mean, you could make an argument that the other things around the redistricting part prompted people to support it. But well, that's kind of inf- a— and lack of information. And that, that could be it. But, but, can, but, yeah, I guess to ask Joe's question, I mean, I why should there be a redo when the— anti-campaign was so lackluster, basically. Well, yeah, again, right. that you, but again, where does that money come from? Who, who is the coalition of people that come together that bring, again, it's talking about, you know, we had a, we were fighting on multiple issues. I mean, there were so many issues that were out there on initiatives that were on the ballot. It's like, where do, you know, take the shotgun approach of, how, you know, do you have enough resources to go around? Obviously, the same people that we're trying to get transportation funding and going and asking them for help and support on that area are same people that probably were opposed to this. But how many, and you know, the marijuana issues, there were so many things out there that you were trying to figure out how do we get garner enough resources that was part of the issue i think and, and have an effective campaign on any one of them now some of these were well funded you know that uh, that were prepared you know that brought uh, uh, you know their initiatives out and they had plenty of funding for that but we were you know i believe some of the conservatives and people that were against some of these things just had difficult time accumulating the resources to find an effective campaign. And and I want to play devil's advocate because I have followed the state legislative redistricting process pretty closely, and so has Joe. And I mean this uh, with all due respect to the people of your district because I really do like your district because I think my dad used to, you know, (laughs) rummage around the district. But, I mean, a West County, Franklin County Senate district really doesn't make a whole lot of logical sense. I think I could point to a couple other House and Senate districts that were drawn either by judges or the – you know, bipartisan commission, which was the case for the Senate ma- maps, where the districts really logically are kind of weird. And, and I'm just trying to say, like, I'm not saying the current process seems very good either, basically. Why why should that process that's produced kind of strange districts like yours remain and not be replaced by this one? Well, I think that if you look around the country at people that are looking at our system that obviously that we are maybe going away from, and that's what they're migrating to. There is multiple states, I think, that are looking at a bipartisan commission, at a bipartisan commission, basically to help draw those districts. You know, like it or not, I think that as you've seen how that Senate district came uh, shaked out uh, in, in the last cycle, I found out about redistricting when I got elected in 2010 because my house district was 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 yes. basically drawn into four different districts, and I ended up basically in a vacant, almost in a vacant seat. And but at the end of the day, I ended up in the state senate. You know, after that was amazing, occurred, amazing how that happened. So yeah, any, but so I, I think, but but I do think that 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 bipartisan commission. Uh, like it or not, I think that the, that there were some things that worked about. There were some things people could complain about, but at the end of the day, uh, I thought it I thought it was fine. But it isn't going to be perfect. Yeah. So so go. But go. yeah. But one thing. Okay. You, there's been talk about putting something else, but it would be 2020, a presidential election year. So yeah, that so, that was going to be my next question. I how, mean, how how, how, how are real, you going to sell it then? And how realistic do you think it'll be that some change to clean Missouri will be? On the ballot in 2020, and if the legislature I think puts it's it there, possible. 
Uh, again, I think it's possible. I don't, again, I can't predict. Uh, I don't even know specifically what and how we will go about looking at it and some of the things that we think need to be changed. I think there's going to be some legislative uh, things that we're going to do to maybe talk about some of the sunshine issues. Which was the issue I was going to bring up next, yeah. actually, right. but continue. Uh, but, I, but I think that we may look at that. We, we may look at, uh, you know, just a few of those issues of things that I think that we could, we could, could try to, because it's kind of left open for some interpretation as, you know, in clean Missouri, I think there's some openings there that, that stat, they refer to statute. There can be some statutorial changes that obviously could impact, you know, how that is done. So I still think it's, again, it's a little early to say because I don't have a, I don't have a bill sitting before me to tell me that this, this we're going to go bing, bing, yeah, bing. Yeah, and I haven't seen any bills done. filed on, on the redistricting part, which yeah. makes me think that there's still, people who are opposed to it are still kind of putting their heads together. Yeah. But I do want to talk about the Sunshine Law sure. aspect of this um, because it has kind of provoked a lot of controversy internally. One of the aspects of Clean Missouri is it says that legislative emails, basically, or legislative documents from individual legislators are now open records. And under state law, there's, there's, there are some exceptions that I've kind of run into. I have, for, for full disclosure, I have done some sunshine requests to, for House members um, trying to get information on the Greitens Committee report. But I do know that there's some legitimate concern that constituent emails may get into the hands, not necessarily reporters, but just of people that may want to embarrass people. This is actually a clip of Rob Schaff talking about this issue, and I'm going to use it to, as a jumping off point for my next question. If we, if Clean Missouri passes, then it will be up to the legislature to lay out the rules about emails. And so the legislature would perfectly be able to pass uh, sensible laws that would protect that confidential stuff, like you call me up and you have a problem with the with the Department of Revenue or something, you know, that wouldn't be, you know, sunshineable. But yet it could be that, you know, other things would be sunshineable. So right now it's the Wild West out there. And I didn't know that the court was going to for sure protect me. He was referring to a lawsuit that uh, we talked about on a previous show. So Senator Ed Emery has uh, proposed a bill that would sh that would basically make constituent emails, and I think information about legislation closed under the Sunshine sure. Act. I'm a, I'm going to be I'm not speaking for every journalist here, so I'm just speaking for myself. I have very little interest in getting a lot of emails from your constituents and publishing it. First of all, there's really no news value in that, and one of the responsibilities of journalists is not to do harm to people just because you can. So I don't have a huge amount of interest in sunshining your email account, getting something from a sensitive matter, and then publishing it. I, I, I know that there are people that disagree with that, but from a practical standpoint, I'm not interested in that. The thing I am concerned about is the potential restriction on legislating. Yes. Because I think that there is more value in journalists finding out if a certain interest group or a certain lobbyist or maybe even another legislator is influencing legislation. So I know that's kind of a, a more of an observation than a question, but I want you to kind of respond to that, given that this does impact us directly as journalists. Well, I think the, the concern that we have, and I don't, I don't have a problem with that being out there in the open and, and the, what, you're at, what you're basically talking about, but again, the constituent communications, because I've had sensitive information of, of individuals that have confided in us and issues that they're facing in helping them navigate through this process that they do not want 
to be part of the public view. I can promise you that. Uh, and so, it, it, again, until we figure out exactly how we can protect that information and, and make sure that we're not violating, you know, the clean Missouri and the things and the provisions of that, we're, that's going to make a challenge for us. Yeah. But I, I'll, I'll say to this uh, other part of that, the other concern that we have when we talk about work product, as we're in the process of, of, of going through and working on legislation and our communications with some of those nonpartisan people that are drafting our, the work product that we're working on, if that's sunshineable, that, you know, we have nonpartisan people that cannot expose to uh, other members of what we're trying to accomplish. Our concern is, is that obviously if we open that up, how do we, how do we, until we actually get something crafted to a point we want, not have that out there and exposed for everybody just to view the processes we're going but through? You're, okay, that actually is a fair concern, yeah. but you're not talking about closing documents if, say, a lobbyist or another legislator or a special interest group or a donor no. In, uh, no. send you emails. But, I want to make no. that clear. Yes. But yeah. some may be. I mean, I think, I mean, what your vision is may not be the same as what some lawmakers are. I was heavily involved in a battle over this 10 years ago. but And I, I can foresee, because of Clean Missouri's provisions, that there's going to be legal fights regard, uh, on, on whatever the General Assembly comes up with if there's an effort to try to guard some emails, even if they're legit reasons. Right. I'm not getting into the weeds. We just talked about that. Yeah. But still, the bottom line is, I could see groups or individuals going to court saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, clean Missouri's constitutional amendment, here's what it says, you guys are trying to uh, counter what now is protected in the Constitution. Yeah, but, so, but so even, but, but, but even that? again, that's one of the reasons I played that Schaff clip. He was a big clean Missouri proponent, and even he doesn't deny that the legislature has the ability to change open records laws, basically. Yeah, yeah, but he's not a lawyer. That is true, but continue. No, I, and I think that, that that's, again, I'm not a lawyer either. I don't never pretended to be one, and obviously... Uh, <laughs> I have two of them. <laughs> you, 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 they're very important in this process. But I think that at the end of the day, Jason, it, it, and, and I, I think this will change behavior. Uh, and so just the people that are wanting to look for that information, in all fairness, if there was something nefarious going on or potentially going on, it's not going to go on at this point because everyone is going to know yes. that all, all this information. So, you know, I, I, what did it accomplish at the end of the day by, by opening that up? Again, I, I don't have a problem with them seeing that and wanting to view that. But if there's someone that wanted to do something with a, a particular group or whatever, they're going to be smart enough to know. Or I would think they'd be smart enough to know so that's not something that we are going to communicate via any kind of electronic format. And therefore, if something is going on, you're still going to have a problem trying to figure that, that out. That's fair. And I know that that's happened uh, in the executive branch. For example, Jay Nixon told us he never sent a single email while he was governor. He just talked with people, basically. So I could see that happening. Before we get to our last topic, I do want to ask you um, if there is any ch- ma- major changes that either get put on the ballot or done through statute. There are going to be people that support Clean Missouri who say, you know, you're going against the will of the people. This was voted on. And you shouldn't touch any of that. I want you to respond. Let to me that. respond to that briefly. Anytime we have an initiative petition, I, I'm, I'm going to tell you that most of the things that we've seen that have been put on the ballot here lately have been from special interest. When we put something through the legislative process, albeit a, imperfect as it is, at least it is brought through a process. It's went through committees. It's gone through public testimony. It's had multiple people look through it. It's had uh, the the media and people have scrutinized it throughout this process. When an issue petition comes through that process, you don't get that. 
And so you're going to find, and I would argue that when we've seen some of these initiatives have been written by some individual, maybe some special interest group or whatever have done that, public does not get to input. You know, they may like certain provisions in Clean Missouri, but they may not like all of it in, in particular. But at the end of the day, I think that's one of the things that I find difficulties with initiatives are, is that we, you don't have that input. You have a legislative body that there's a lot of things that happen, and to get a piece of legislation passed, it has to go through a lot of places. So. But, I mean, is there ever going to be an effort? I mean, there's always talk about changing the initiative process. But then again, you might have to go to the voters and ask them I to know, approve it. I know. There is the irony of that. But <laughs> but there have been a lot of people that have proposed bills restricting the initiative petition process. Either you have to get more signatures or a constitutional amendment would have to be uh, like two-thirds instead of a majority. Do you think that that may have some momentum this well, year? Well, I think it does. I think it's going to be a conversation. But when you look at, at the, the, the previous initiatives that have been put forth, I mean, if you've got a couple million dollars— and that's really what it takes to go out and gather the signatures. You're going to get enough signatures to get something put on the ballot at yeah. the end of the day. And again, I'm not saying do we look at maybe coming from from all the congressional districts, require signatures, whatever. Uh, you know, I think there needs to be a process that allows the, the voters and the people that opportunity to go forward when they when they can't get something accomplished. But again, I think it's being abused right now by special interests. Final topic before I know you have to go to your next radio interview. Yes. Right to work, mm-hmm. sure. which is a a the term that proponents use to describe a bill or a law that bars unions and employers from requiring workers to pay dues. I've said that so many times over the years, it's basically like pressing like F5 on a keyboard. Yeah, I know. I know, but you have to explain what it is. So that was something that failed at the ballot box. It was repealed by- The General Assembly had approved it. They approved it, it and it was repealed by voters. Right. And- um, you know, I actually asked you whether you would be a priority for you at a, a candidate forum. To resurrect it. To resurrect it. And you basically said the voters have spoken, basically. Yeah. And I, well, I'll make this very clear. I I, I don't know, and I, I, I haven't researched my last eight years, but I don't think I've ever filed right to work. No. Obviously, I'm a, a strong believer in the freedom to work, in the concept of a, an employee having the freedom to choose whether they want to belong or not to belong. So I'm, that hasn't changed. My opinion on that hasn't changed. But when I talk about whether or not I think it's going to be something that's going to, you know, that we're going to be pushing that agenda for me? No, that's not going to be something that we're going to be pushing. But I also realize that there are going to be legislators that that's a priority for them, and they're going to file. I know that there's legislation that's been filed at this point. We're not going to be able to prohibit that. And so the discussion is going to continue on on that particular issue. But I don't think, in all reality, I don't think it has the legislative, uh, you know, opportunity to, to make that, you know, really something the voters would have to worry about. Because there had been some proposed talk of some proposals to let it be county by county, but then you run into the fact that the General Assembly tossed out some uh, other issues like the plastic bag bans and like uh, raising the minimum wage I, I, in, I, I, in I, the urban and areas I'm struggling because to, they disagree And I'm struggling it. to find out like wh- how impactful would that be? Like if you had right to work in, say, Atchison County – for example, like, even, like what, how, how would that make any difference exactly unless the union is based there, essentially? I, well, I, I don't know. I think what, what, what that is, again, I think what we're looking at, again, whether or not you have, have researched, and again, okay, we could go way off into the weeds on this particular topic. Yeah. I won't get very far. I don't but think so. But if you look at what <laughs> Kentucky has done since they have passed right to work and how much money that has been, they passed it in 2017 and acted it came in law. I believe there's been over $9 billion of new investment of, of businesses that have been going to uh, and and spending money and and again that at the end of the day that that creates additional union high-paying jobs you know whether it be through concrete steel whatever that goes on as those companies and factories build so if there was a county by county option you may see a company 
that would say, hey, Atchison County, you know, we know that there are certain auto manufacturers, foreign car manufacturers that will not come to a state unless they have the freedom to work. That, 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 is, a, that is a prerequisite for them. If they were going to build a plant and they had an opportunity to come to a county that did have freedom to work, that may open an opportunity after that. I, I can't tell you if that's been done anywhere else across the country. Yeah, and I think there would be legal challenges. There was, sure. I, I think that that was mentioned in that KSDK piece. But would you have to pass legislation to allow that, or would it just be like maybe a county tries it and goes to the courts or something like I that? Would, well, I again, I'm not an attorney. I wouldn't know exactly how that would occur, but it may be something I would think it would require some legislative uh, approach. And I think it's going to run into the same barriers as right to work is. Like, I think it's going to be filibustered by every Democrat, and I think they're going to make the same argument that I mentioned about Clean Missouri, that it's a will of the people thing, yeah, and you don't want to but overturn I, but it. But I will say this. Let me let me just walk one real quick. I don't know how much time we got yep. left, but I will say this, that when the governor, uh, Governor Greitens, was elected, obviously it, it was no secret that where he stood on the issue. It was not. He, he was overwhelmingly elected. I was surprised, the fact that he got elected. And the General Assembly, we had a, a supermajority of individuals that believed, and we passed that particular issue. Now, the initiative petition process, they had the, the ability to go in and overturn what the General Assembly had done. Now, did that end the discussion on that particular issue just because the voters overturned that? But then we turn right back around. We have another election cycle, myself included, was, was reelected. Uh, and, and people know the position that I have on that particular issue. In fact, I think there was only one sitting Republican legislator, Mark Matheson, who voted for right to work, who was voted out of office. And, and that was. And, and by 80 votes or something. And, and yeah, that, I could yeah. argue that was because his district is crazy right. democratic or something like that but continue basically. yeah so i so i think at the end of the day you know i don't think you know that they did a very they run a very well effective campaign in getting voters to understand their issue and and what they felt about the, and the narrative they created the narrative on that issue but I, I again do i think that there's going to be something pop up out of the legislature this year no i do not but do i think the discussion's over if we continue to see the decline that we're seeing and what we've seen and how the labor force and the percentage of labor force that's unionized, if it continues to decline and the opportunity is there, there may be a time when it does come back up for discussion. But I don't think that it's not an agenda that I'm going to be uh, beating down the door to, to make it happen or occur. Okay. One little quick. What is your top issue? As soon as you take what office, what's the one thing that you want to make sure that the Senate at least looks at right away? I, I am concerned about the, the, the rising cost of higher education. I have been passionate about, you know, obviously I have uh, children that are in the, the process of obtaining their college education, so I'm in the midst of that. I've got one that just entered into college here this past year, and so I still have a few years of college education. But what I've seen uh, is a continuing cost. And I do think that when we talk about workforce development and directing people into the right areas and teaching them skills that they can, they can go out and earn, but the one thing that I want to see happen is I want students and parents to be able to have the opportunity to understand what it is going to cost, what is my all-in cost associated, associated with obtaining a college degree. If I'm going to be an engineer, how much is it going to cost when four years is over, if I've completed all the courses, tell me what my all-in costs are so I can make an educated decision on what I'm going to do and how I'm going to afford that. Well, I just want to thank you so much for spending 52 minutes talking about a lot of issues. And we're going to try to have you back every year as long sure. as you're pro time. That's kind of been our tradition. Of yes. when. Uh, Senator Dempsey was in office. We got Ron Richard on once. He obviously lives farther away than St. Louis. Yeah, but Dempsey so. made it a habit of. So uh, you're stuck with I'm us. I'm not far. I'm I'm much more centralized <laughs> than where Ron came. From. I know, and I and I I'm I wish Ron the best in his future. I really enjoyed working with him from when I was a very young reporter. And even though he said some some 
incendiary things sometimes he was fun to cover and hopefully you can be fun to cover as well for all of our stories stlpublicradio.org follow me on twitter jay rosenbaum follow joe on twitter at jay manis that's j m-a-n-n-i-e-s i believe your twitter is at dave shots 26 is that correct i believe that's correct Th- that could be correct we'll, we'll make sure that's correct 